We are in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. The letters to the seven churches. And uh, they're real letters written to what were real churches in Asia Minor, what is now Western Turkey. It is uh, interesting that they were letters written to real churches in what is now modern-day Turkey, and in some ways, the letters contain encouragements but warnings to be faithful lest the light goes out. And of course, in that part of the world, over the centuries, the light of the gospel has gone out, but praise God, is beginning to flicker all over again. And the letters address specific issues in these churches. None of them is written directly to us. But nonetheless, each of them has stuff to say to us. And at times, very directly. This morning, the letter to the church in uh, Thyatira. This, according to my Bible commentaries, is the hard letter to preach. And the subject matter is serious, as you will see. But it's God's word to us. Let's read then Revelation 2 at verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. And behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron." As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would speak to us all clearly from your word. Help us to see this not as the words of uh, human beings who wrote them, 
but the inspired word of God with the full authority of the Lord Jesus. Help us to listen and to obey, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there is uh, inside the service sheet, as ever, some notes to help us uh, study this passage. The dominant theme, and you will be aware of that from the passage as I read it, is holiness or purity or morality in the church. Let me just underscore that. The letter is talking about morality in the church, not in society. That is an important issue, but it's not the issue here. It's about what goes on inside the church of Christ. Over 20 years ago, Jim Packer, some of you will know his name, wrote a book called A Passion for Holiness. He was a, uh, is still, I guess, a global Christian leader, and he wrote his book out of urgent concern for what he felt was, and I quote, a dull passion in the church today for holiness or purity or godliness. And he goes on to say, it haunts me now. Remember, he is writing 20 years ago. It haunts me now as I contemplate the church's current loss of biblical truth about holiness. Our Christian heritage of holiness is rich. There was a time when all Christians laid great emphasis on the reality of God's call to holiness and spoke with deep insight about his enabling of us for it. Written 20 years ago, almost a prophetic voice to the church and deeply challenging as we reflect on the church 20 years on from when he wrote. On Friday at Andy's wedding in St. Peter's Church, there is at the back of the church an old pulpit which was occupied by Robert Murray McChain, who was the first minister of St. Peter's Church. And throughout his ministry, which was a time of renewal and revival in the church, and along with many other colleagues in his generation, he emphasized repeatedly to young and old the need for holiness in life for Christians, for the church. Amongst the many things he wrote, he said this, It is not great talents God blesses so much or uses so much in his church as much as great likeness to Jesus. And that is intuitively true, is it not? Giftedness is one thing. The gift of the gab for a preacher is one thing. But if the life behind the voice is entirely inconsistent, then the voice is rendered ineffectual. It is not great talents God blesses so much as likeness to the Lord Jesus. Now, the uh, subject matter in this letter is obvious. Why is it that the emphasis on holiness has been lost? 
Well, let me suggest a number of reasons. One, we have become desensitized to what the Bible calls immorality, no longer shocked by what we see, read, and hear. One of the seminar streams at uh, Keswick, the great thing about going to a convention like that is you can dip into all sorts of things and amass an army of ideas for the following year. One of the themes was on what our children are learning in a culture. And the person leading the seminar stream just showed us, because we have become desensitized to this, just the array of sexual images our children, when they are growing up, see every day. It's just an entirely different world. As you walk past the billboards in the meadows advertising fringe shows, amongst a lot of stuff that is good and wholesome, and Christians often beat a negative drum about stuff like the festival in Edinburgh. There's some fantastic stuff, and we need as Christians to celebrate the world of the hearts. But there's some shocking stuff on billboards on our street corners. And we're desensitized because it has become all too familiar. The second reason as Christians, we've lost this emphasis, is uh, that we gauge our distinctiveness relevant to where the culture is at. So we're still different, but as the moral line within the culture has radically shifted, so the line of Christian distinctiveness relative to that moral line has shifted with it. On the beaches in Cornwall, there are red and yellow flags that warn of dangerous currents. Watch out for them when you are swimming, because you will not notice they have dragged you out until you are 200 yards from the shore. That's true, isn't it? Uh, the worst currents in beaches in Cornwall are called rip currents. But I'm not sure that the rip currents in terms of the moral shift in the culture, are the most dangerous. I think it's the gentle currents that just bit by bit take you from the shore. A third reason why the emphasis on holiness is lost is because as Christians we are under pressure from the culture and inside the church to set aside the clear teaching of God's word and morality. The pressure from the culture should not surprise us. It is simply a consequence of the fact that the wider Christian culture in our society has gone. We are now living in normal times when the prevailing culture is not Christian. And that should not surprise us nor alarm us. It is exactly what the New Testament says it is like. It's just that it's not been like that here for 300 years. It is now. Pressure from inside the church, though to set aside the Bible's teaching of morality, is maybe even tougher. The argument goes something like this. Unless we change, or at least be cautious and silent, unless we change, we will be perceived as a church as irrelevant in the culture. And that argument is articulated with varying degrees of strength. 
It might be a clear convicted agenda within the church that it needs to set aside its historic teaching on morality if it is to have a voice in the culture. Or it might be the subtle tug at the heart that we have lost confidence in what the Bible says on morality. And if we do not change or be silent, then we will not get a hearing. Either way, it misses the fundamental point that the church's witness is not to be conformed by the culture, but to transform the culture. The fourth reason we have lost touch with what the Bible says on holiness is because as Christians, it took us a long time to learn how to speak truth with compassion. I had to speak on this subject at uh, Keswick on Wednesday night. And you can imagine the natural trepidation I had in front of 20 squillion people with TV cameras all around me. And I said to the organizers, why did you ask me to speak on this? And they said, well, we understand what you've been through as a church, and you will have learned to speak truth with compassion. Isn't that striking? I think... Possibly they were right. It disarmed me of my next question. One last reason that the emphasis on holiness has been lost is that we have lost sight of what the Bible teaches about holiness. We're wary of teaching on these matters. Not surprisingly, on Wednesday night, when I spoke on this subject, there was a huge queue of people afterwards wanting to speak to me. And most of them expressed to me a sense of relief that what the Bible teaches on matters of morality was being taught. I remember vividly a conversation with a man who had come that night in a minibus with his youth group from church. And on the way out of the tent, two of the teenagers turned to him and said, why have you not taught us this? We need to know. And so we do. Now, that's uh, more than enough waggling on the tea. Let's uh, get into the meat of the letter. But uh, I did want to impress upon us the uh, relevance of this subject. Verse 18, you'll see there on the sheet what I've entitled the purifying words of Jesus. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I've got uh, Thessalonians in my mind and Revelation. I can't help that. I've been teaching Thessalonians all week. Somebody did remind me when I came into church this morning. It was somebody on the door. Make sure you don't preach a sermon out of Thessalonians. <laughs> the most important verse in Thessalonians is this. Paul says to them, these are not my words, but the words of God. The most important verse in this letter is verse 18. They're not the words of John the writer. They are the words of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who inspired him to write. 
if we hear the Bible's teaching on holiness and morality as the views of Paul or Peter, or if we hear the Bible's teaching on morality as the views of preachers, then we should not trust them nor necessarily listen to them. But if what we read in our Bibles are the words of God, then we should listen to them. The true reality is that in the church, the debates on morality are not so much about morality as they are about whether or not we trust the Bible as God's Word. And this letter begins by saying these are Jesus' words. And they are the words of one who has eyes like a flame of fire. Fire is used in Revelation not as judgment, but as purifying fire. Transforming heat and power. The purifying words of Jesus. Now you'll see on the sheet that I've tried to draw out in what look like quite complicated and cumbersome headings what I think is going on in the letter. But uh, it is important that we uh, understand it. You need to uh, keep paying attention as we oscillate between the majority and the minority in this letter. And you'll see how it works. Firstly, a strong commendation for the majority. Verse 19, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your uh, latter works exceed the first. That's a strong commendation to this church, arguably the strongest commendation in any of these letters. It is very striking, thinking ahead to the rest of the letter, that in a very strong church there can be a big problem. But before we lapse into just thinking about the big problem, it is also true that in a church with a very big problem, it can be a very strong church. It is a strong church. And God commends it. Look at the words of commendation and listen to these words from John Stott as he writes about this letter. Thyatira's church was like a beautiful garden in which the fairest Christian graces blossomed. Well, the humble ministry on the one hand and on the other, that trinity so often described by Paul, faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love are mentioned by name. And what is perseverance but the fruit of hope? This is an active living church. It is filled with faith, hope, and love. And a church that is growing. Not numerically, it might be, but it's growing in faith, hope, and love. Your latter works, Paul writes, exceed the first. In other words, you are doing more now than you did at first. That's a good test for a church and for a Christian, that it makes progress in the work of God. This is a strong church. And we are a strong church in Chalmers, relatively speaking, with all our problems and our faults. Faith, hope, and love abound. Faith, hope, and love abound in God's people. But then comes an equally strong rebuke. 
And the strong rebuke in verse 20 is directed at the same group of people as the commendation. So to the majority in the church who are exhibiting faith, hope, and love, to the majority in the church who are strong and clear in their commitment, to the majority in the church who are living by the word of God, the rebuke comes in verse 20, but I have this against you, the majority, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, it is difficult for us to be absolutely precise about the teaching of this woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. In the previous letter that Josh was teaching last Sunday, there is reference to the teaching of groups like the Balaamites and Nicolaitans, which permitted, indeed encouraged, immoral behavior, sexual immorality. And this false teaching in Thyatira is in the same ballpark, sexual immorality and idolatry. Idolatry here means, I think, simply self-satisfaction, self-gratification. And almost certainly in that church there, was teaching going on by this particular individual and others perhaps that was calling these Christians not to trust to the Bible's clear teaching on morality, the Word of God, but to indulge in sexual immorality. And just uh, let me be clear here, the Bible's teaching on Sex is clear and consistent. And uh, I can uh, point you to numerous passages, if you would like, to show you what it says. The Bible's teaching on sex is that it is for one context and one context alone. Marriage between a man and a woman. And the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, holds up marriage as the God-given context for sex, a picture of the gospel, a picture of the relationship between Jesus Christ and his bride. It holds up marriage and it protects marriage. And remember, these words are addressed to the church Marriage is held up and marriage is protected from any form of sexual immorality, that is sex outside of God-given context, marriage between a man and a woman. And the teaching going on in this church was saying, well, that's too restrictive. Notice in verse 24, that uh, the Lord Jesus, when he inspires John to write, refers to the deep things of Satan, deep teaching. And you can hear the kind of thing, God has given me a deeper revelation, deeper insight, deeper sense of the mystery of the divine. And what some people are saying is clearly forbidden in God's word is in fact the way to find that deeper knowledge, that deeper revelation. That's quite strong. What I've heard said often in wider church circles, is God is leading us to a new thing. The Holy Spirit is showing us a new way. That is dangerous. How dangerous? 
Jesus says, it is the deep things of Satan. If you do not have in mind the things of God, what's the opposite? The deep things of Satan. And uh, the rebuke to the majority is they turn a blind eye. Now, what kind of applications can we draw into our context? Well, I guess the most obvious one is a situation in a church or in a wider church setting where there is teaching that advocates an acceptable way of lifestyle that is wholly at odds with the plain meaning of Scripture. And remind us again that this is a letter to the church. So when the church, locally or widely, says that God's teaching on morality and sexuality is wrong, then the rebuke comes to the majority and says, do not turn a blind eye to that. It is dangerous for you to do so. What does turning a blind eye mean? Turning a blind eye means turning a blind eye. It means saying nothing. It means doing nothing. And what happens over time is that within the church, we become, within the church, desensitized to the fact that it is wrong. And of course, you and I are well aware in our culture or in the church how difficult it is to say something and how much easier it would be to say nothing because you think that when you say something, there will be consequences, and so there are. And you think that when you say something, your gospel message, especially with folks that you are sharing the gospel with who are that close to faith and who have been told everywhere in the media and in the wider church that the Bible's teaching of morality is offensive, you think they're going to run a mile. But you say it, and you are not silent. And God attends what you say and do with His Holy Spirit. And they do not run a mile. And they listen. Because it is God's Word. Again and again, people came up to me in Keswick and said, in our church or in my circle of friends, there are issues that need addressed. How do you go about addressing them? And I said, well, you, you need to. You need to. How? You need to. You need to speak. You need to act. You need to counsel people. You need to pray with them. And I found myself turning people to the words of the Lord Jesus here and in the Gospels and showing them that to speak truth in love means that you do not rob truth of truth and you do not rob love of love. I can't explain that to you if you are not a Christian 
But if you are a Christian, you know that to rob truth of truth is unloving. (laughs) And to speak truth without love is impossible if you are truly converted when you speak God's truth and Christ's truth. And so when I spoke in front of all of these people on this subject on Wednesday, was it controversial? The opposite. I was scared to death, mind. But it was transforming in many lives. And to the many people who were there who weren't Christians... I was able to say at the end, it's what Jesus is describing here about safe sexuality within a marriage between a man and a woman for life. A worse way or a better way. With all the complexities of that. Now, a warning to the minority Verses 21 to 23, repent or judgment will come. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. The, the, the striking of her children dead is followers, not her own children. People who are disciples, if you like, of this kind of teaching within the church. And all the churches will know that I am her who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your... Now, these are very sobering words. And they are directed to those who drive this agenda in the church. Anti-God's morality. And there comes a point when the opportunity to repent is over and judgment comes. There comes a point when the sword of the Spirit that alerts the conscience becomes a sort of judgment. And for this particular teacher in Thyatira, that time for judgment has come. And that's serious stuff. Notice, though, in these verses that while the time for repentance for the false teachers is past, there is still opportunity for those who have been seduced by this teaching to repent. Look again at verse 22. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, judgment for the false teacher, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. So when at a conference like Keswick, countless Christians from churches like us come up and say, I have never heard the Bible's teaching on these matters. When a man with his youth group comes up to me and says they're off to stop in a motorway service station to have chips together to talk about this stuff, because these youngsters sense with their Christian converted hearts that this is God's way for them. Then is it true that in a wider church it is aware of what the Bible teaches? Of course it's not. And what the church needs to do in our generation is to teach the Bible on these matters with all the winsomeness and grace and compassion of the Lord Jesus so that people who have never heard what the Bible teaches 
And there are thousands in the church who have never heard what the Bible teaches on most things can hear and can repent and can change. Now, verses 24 to 25, as we come to a close, exhortation for the faithful majority. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast to what you have until I come. The reference to not imposing any other burden on them is simply Jesus saying, I think that the teaching they have already received is all that they need. We are simply to hold fast to what we already have. That is to say, what he has already given us in his written word. Now, there's a timely word to the church in the West. One of the uh, I'm talking too much about Keswick. It's been all over my mind, obviously. You can understand that. One of the wonderful things that happened at the conference is that you listen to people from other parts of the world and they tell you astonishing things that are happening in the world. Like two-thirds of the globe is Christian. That in a country like China, we know this because of our partners there, the rate of gospel growth is astonishing. Chairman Mao, when he began the Cultural Revolution, did two things. He banned indigenous cultural family religion. And he moved people from that little bit up there in the top of China into the middle. What he didn't know is that's where all the Christians were. And that combination from the person who began the Cultural Revolution to ban religion and to put the Christians in the heart of Beijing did what? The gospel exploded. And Bible teaching cannot keep up with the growth of the gospel in China. In this part of the world, it is completely the opposite. We are the only continent that is declining fast. And we will decline faster if we do not hold fast to the Bible's teaching on everything, not least morality. We are in normal times, and normal times are defining times, and defining times are clarifying times. And when the church in normal times, which are tough times, becomes clear, then that church in this part of the world will begin to burn again. So it's always been in history. Hold fast. Not hold fast in the sense of hold on like grim death and get all pessimistic and shut the doors. Hold fast. And get out there and teach the gospel. And teach the Bible. 
And the promise to those who overcome, verses 26 to 29, the one who conquers and who keeps my words until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I will give authority over the nations. That is a a future-orientated promise to the new creation, to the new heavens and the new earth, where faithful people, Christians, will reign forever with God and with the Lord Jesus. The bright morning star is the Lord Jesus himself. And it simply means that one day we will share his glory we will be fully glorified in his likeness and without sin. It means that one day we will see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So that's a pretty tough letter, isn't it? Or a gentle letter, whichever way you hear it. And it's both. It's clear strong, it's gentle, and true. I was able in Keswick to say nice things about you as a church. And one of the things I was able to say, I was very wary of, of saying from that platform about what had happened to us as a church, partly because it's complex and there are all sorts of ways of dealing with these issues. We've done it one way. But they, they kind of pushed me to say it because they didn't know me. They didn't know that where we've been as a church. So I did tell them on the Wednesday and uh, carefully, I trust, and graciously, and said to them the greatest encouragement for me was to have observed a generation of young people in our church, and older people too, we oldies, but a generation of young people who are crystal clear and committed to the Word of God on these issues. People like Andy and Kyrene as they were married on Friday, with all the failings in their lives and ours, but clear and strong and committed to that orthodox future. These hundred or so teenagers off at Contagious this week. Not being indoctrinated, but liberated with truth. I was able to tell them how people, young people in our church, have stood up in these public meetings graciously and winsomely. hold fast in the face of pressure to truth. But you will never think, and I will never think, I trust, that we have in some sense arrived. (laughs) We have only arrived when we get to glory. But in this life, the call of God to us is to be faithful and true to his word. Let me pray as we finish in a pastoral way 
because as ever, God's Word may have spoken to some of us in a very personal way. Father, thank you for the power of this letter. Thank you for its truth, its strength, its honesty, and its care of the church. We pray, Lord, that as a church family here in Chalmers, we would be faithful to your word on issues of morality and committed to living the Christian life in accordance with what your word teaches. Lord, your word on these issues of morality churns up all sorts of things in every life. For who of us here in this room could stick their hand up and say, yes, I am free of sexual sin? The answer is zero. But we pray, Lord, where there are issues in our hearts and lives that we have become indifferent to, that they would come under the gaze of your divine eyes and that what is wrong would be transformed and purified by your Holy Spirit, not in our own strength, but through the power of the Holy Spirit that indwells us and lives inside of us. And Lord, if there are folk here who are not yet Christians, we pray, Lord, that they would not walk away from the church because of its clear teaching on morality, but they would weigh up what the Bible says and weigh up the manner in which it is spoken and lived and consider whether or not it is a better way for the good of our society and the good of the church. Lord, protect us when we study these challenging words together. Guard our hearts, and we pray that we would love each other with deep compassion and grace and humility, for we are a family, and that's what families do. And we pray that we would do so more and more, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.